0: Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel 11. We're going to be ambitious this morning. An attempt to cover two entire chapters of Scripture. Uh, For those of you that have just come Sunday mornings, you may never have seen me do this before. When we were in Ezekiel, sometimes we'd cover two, three, four chapters of Scripture in one night. Uh, But I don't know that anyone uh, that has just been here in the morning has seen this kind of a chunk, probably, maybe, I don't know. But um, but we're going to try to be ambitious and cover uh, two entire chapters of Scripture this morning. If you're a born-again believer in this room, you are by default a minister of the truth of God. Oftentimes in our prayer request times, even this morning was mentioned uh, attempts to share the gospel with others. I know um, there there's a, a, a continually attempts in in my neighborhood and. Uh, through our family to try to be a good testimony and to share the gospel with our neighbors. In fact, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, and that he, that's Jesus, died for all, that they which live, that's believers, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. The idea of that verse being that we as believers were born again to minister. We were born again to live unto the one who died for us. When you tell another the gospel, you minister the truth. When you call a fellow believer out on some sin, you minister the truth. Even when you are speaking with a believer who is walking in right fellowship with the Lord and filled with the Spirit of God, and you two are, are talking about the things of, of God's Word, you are ministering, you are iron, sharpening iron, ministering the truth of God's Word into each other's hearts. And regardless of the context that you regularly find yourself ministering in, there are some common threads of ministry that help us along the way. A mindset of ministry that we need to have on a daily, moment-by-moment basis as we're interacting with our children, as we're interacting with our families, as we're interacting uh, with our coworkers, as we're interacting with our classmates, as we're interacting with people at the store, wherever it might be, we ought to foster in our hearts and in our minds a mindset of Ministry and understand the common threads of ministry that work throughout consistent ways that God has chosen to use his ministers throughout time and in every age to declare the truth to others. And this is going to be our focus this morning in First Samuel 11 and 12. First Samuel 11 is going to be somewhat of, of an introduction, it's just going to be introductory material as we set the stage for Samuel's message in First Samuel 12, and I think you'll see how that will work as we'll go along today. In First Samuel 11, in verses 1 through 11, we are introduced to a man named Nahash, and he is the leader of the Ammonite nation. Now, the Ammonites were not a Cajun, uh, uh, Cajun. I don't know where that came from, uh, a Canaanite people. They were not a Canaanite people. They were a, a people that were outside of the, the land of Canaan proper. In fact, they were not one of the people groups that God allowed Israel to overtake. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, God explicitly told the nation of Israel that they may not destroy the Ammonites, that they may not take the land of the Ammonites. And that was because the Ammonites were descendants... Of a man named Lot, and Lot was Abraham's nephew, was a man of faith. Uh, he had his bumps in the road, but uh, the New Testament calls him righteous Lot. and God had promised Lot an inheritance. And that inheritance uh, was the inheritance of the Ammonite people. And so because of their connection to the man Lot, um, God would not allow Israel to have that inheritance. We we learn of that in Deuteronomy chapter two. That being said, however, we find that by the time we get to Deuteronomy twenty three, the Ammonites are among a people that were completely banned, completely um, anathema, uh, not allowed to become a part of the nation. Of Israel. They were not allowed to enter into the congregation of Israel, become a prosely- proselyte or a, a um, citizen of the nation, even, God said, unto the tenth generation. There were certain nations where in the third generation they could come into the the nation of Israel. Ammon was one of the nations that was not allowed in, even, God said, unto the tenth generation. And the reason was because when... If you recall, we talked not too long ago about Balaam. And Balaam's um, terrible advice to Balak to send the harlots of Moab into Israel so that God would curse His people. In all of those events, Deuteronomy 23 tells us that Ammon had a hand in that. That Ammon was a part of... um, of Moab's plan to destroy the nation through the doctrine of Balaam. And so God had officially cast them out of the capacity to become citizens of Israel because of their sin. And this began a degree of animosity between the Ammonites and Israel. And this animosity would really never go away. Uh, the Ammonites are one of the nations by the time of the judges that is a perennial enemy of the nation of Israel. They were subdued during the days of Jephthah. And if you uh, go back and you review in the book of Judges the account of Jephthah and everything that he did, um, he was very successful in his campaigns against the Ammonites. And this success clearly uh, made the Ammonites very, very upset. Now, after the days of Jephthah, we read nothing in the Bible about the Ammonites until 1 Samuel 11. This is the next time they come up and we're probably about a hundred years removed from Jephthah's um, deliverance of Israel. So it's been about a hundred years and we're introduced to this man named Nahash. And what we're going to find as we go through the text is Nahash is most likely driven by a personal vendetta against Israel. Probably because of what happened to the Ammonites in the days of Jephthah. This man, he's not just conquering. This man wants... Israel to be reproached. He wants Israel to suffer. He uh, does not like them at all. And that's the underlying history of the Ammonites and Israel. So now the Ammonites in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 11 have gathered against Israel and they're seeking to take one of the cities in the northeastern quadrant of Israel. It's an outlying city. It's on the other, um, would be on the other side of Jordan, actually beyond that. But uh, the city's name is Jabesh Gilead or just Jabesh of Gilead. Oftentimes, what you'll see in the King James Bible is um, Jabesh Gilead will be the name of the city, but in fact, Gilead is the region within which it is, and um, Jabesh is the actual name of the city. They call it Jabesh of Gilead because there were uh, other Jabeshes. there were other city names of the same name, and so It would be in the same way that if you had a state in our union and there were two cities of the same name, such as, say, Buffalo, where you have a Buffalo in Minnesota and you have a Buffalo in New York. And when people, you travel and people say, oh, where are you from? And you say, well, I'm from Buffalo. And they say, oh, New York? And you say, no, not at all. So you don't don't just say, I'm from Buffalo, right? Because no one's going to assume Buffalo, Minnesota. You say, I'm from Buffalo, Minnesota. And in doing so, of course, many of you aren't. You're from other cities, but that's the example, right? That, that when, when we would say Buffalo, we'd have to distinguish between Buffalo, Minnesota and Buffalo, New York. Well, this is Jabesh of Gilead. This is Jabesh Gilead. And that is the, the city that the Ammonites are about to take over. And it's very clear that they have a superior source. The city has no means by which to handle this army that Ammon is about to throw at it. And so Ammon... Asks, or uh, Jabesh, the people of Jabesh Gilead, ask Ammon to make a truce with them. And they say this, and we find this in verse 1 Make a covenant with us, and we will serve thee. Nahash, if you will make a covenant with us, that you will not destroy us, then we will become your servants. And notice verse 2 it says, And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition will I make a covenant with you, that I may thrust out all your right eyes and lay it. For a reproach upon all Israel. He says, I am not just here to conquer. I'm here to make Israel pay. And so here's what we'll do. If you are willing to have me thrust out or pluck out the, uh, the right eye of every person in your city, I'll let you live and that will be a reproach on Israel, that you have no capacity to protect your own people, that, that I am stronger than you. Of course, the right eye, the right side in Scripture being the side of dominance. I apologize to all you left people. But the, the right side was, was, was the description of the side of dominance, of the side of honor. And so by plucking out the right eye, it would be a, a sign that, that um, they could not protect their people and that these people were indeed subservient to Ammon. Well, Jabesh Gilead wasn't really thrilled with this idea, but if you had to decide between your life or your right eye, I, I, I'd assume most of us in this room would, would just say, okay, take my eye. And so they're, they're about ready to make this deal, but they say, Nahash, give us, give us seven days. And give us time to, go to, to send messengers to Israel and to ask if anyone will come and help us. Help us fight you. And if nobody responds, then we'll submit. We'll, we'll, we'll let you take out our right eyes and um, that'll be that. Well, Nahash agrees. War being different in that time, but also likely this man is just very proud. He says, what can Israel do? I've got an army. What can they do let them send whoever they want. Not going to help them a bit. So he agrees. Seven days. If no one comes, then I'm going to pluck out your right eyes as a reproach to Israel and you're going to become my servant. So Jabesh sends messengers to Saul and Gibeah telling them the situation. And the messengers come and the people that, that are, are with Saul hear the message and they are weeping. They are weeping because of this circumstance that they find themselves in. Weeping because of the reproach that will be upon Israel. Weeping because, because of, of the dire straits of Jabesh-Gilead. And Saul comes and he sees them, them weeping and he asks what's going on. And they tell him, this is what's going on, Jabesh-Gilead, Nahash of Ammon, and uh, plucking out right eyes, and it's, it's, it's terrible. And Saul gets very angry, the Scriptures tell us. And verse 6 tells us that, that in his anger, that as his anger was kindled, the Spirit of God came upon him. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that the nature of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, the filling of the Holy Spirit... For a particular ministry. And so the Spirit of God comes upon Saul and the Bible tells us as we continue that he cut up a yoke of oxen. Now, typically two oxen would be yoked together. So when we see that phrase, a yoke of oxen, it would mean whatever the yoke is, which is typically two. And so two oxen is what we would believe would would be the yoke here. And he takes this yoke of oxen and verse seven says he cuts them into pieces and he sends them to every corner of Israel and he sends them with this message. Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. And this makes the people very nervous, very fearful. Uh, what Saul is threatening is if you don't come help fight for Israel, then I am going to destroy your livelihood. I'm going to kill your oxen. As a farming community, as as uh, people that that were sustained by their own land, to lose their oxen would be... Um, a, a, a terrible, terrible blow to their livelihood. And so not too many people ignored this this call. And in fact, the scriptures tell us that when everybody came forth, the number of the children of Israel were 300,000 men. 300,000 men ready to fight. And then it says, and the men of Judah, 30 and so we see a distinction here between the men of Israel and the men of Judah. There's no consensus as to why this is the case, why Judah is set apart from Israel here uh, in its numbering. We do see it several times in Scripture where Judah is set aside in its numbering from Israel. We know that Judah was the largest tribe in Israel. And we also know that, of course, in, in a matter of um, about 100 years, 120 years or so, Judah would become a nation of its own. And the 10 tribes of Israel, with the exception of Benjamin, would secede from Israel, would become the northern tribes of Israel. And it might be looking ahead uh, in the divinely inspired word to that time. But we're not quite sure why it is Judah is separated here. But Saul, uh, Saul gathers these men and they're all ready to go. This tremendously large fighting force. And he sends a message to Jabesh Gilead and he says, you've got help coming. And verse 11 says that while it was still early in the morning, the army of Saul came upon the army of Ammon and absolutely destroyed them and slew them until the heat of the day. So we're talking about hours and hours and hours of men just slaying other men. So much so, verse 11 says, that when when everything was over, of all that remained in in Ammon, they were scattered so much that two of them were not left together. There was not one scenario where there were two men together, two soldiers together in Ammon. They were so scattered that every single man went in his own direction. Every man for himself. A tremendous victory in Israel on that day. And the response of the people to this was what you might expect in verses 12-15. through 15. People said unto Samuel, Who is he? Verse 12. That said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. So following this great victory, there was an immediate response of the people and that response... See, prior to the victory, a lot of people were skeptical of Saul. You know, you had the group that followed him, right? Yeah, as, as the Lord's anointed, they followed him. And then you had the children of Belial... Who, who said, what, what's this man going to do for us? And then everyone else just kind of went back to their tents. Okay, we have a king now, this is good. And now everyone has swung over to Saul's favor. And they, in, in the heat of their excitement over the king and what, what, is just, what God has just done through Saul and rallying the people and getting them together and fighting this battle, they say, where were those children of Belial? Get them out here that we can kill them. They, they said that this guy can't do anything for us. Look at what he's just done. Let's kill him. And, and Saul, in uh, one of the few points of wisdom in his life, says, no, 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 not, not today. There's been enough killing. We, we've destroyed our enemies. We don't need to start destroying each other. There will be no death today. And in verse 14, Samuel speaks up. And he calls the whole nation to Gilgal. He says, come, let us go into Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And verse 15 says, all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they scattered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Gilgal, the place where the nation of Israel was recircumcised following the uh, uh, journey over the Jordan River before Jericho was destroyed. Gilgal, a place that literally means rolling, the day that the reproach of Israel rolled off their backs, the day that they renewed the covenant with God. This place of deep covenantal significance in the Scripture is where they came. And this was not just to name Saul king. He, he'd been named king already. This was to renew the kingdom, to bring the kingdom to a place where they have aligned themselves and their king with the Word of God And with the covenant of God. And so all the people rejoiced greatly. Now in chapter 12, we see this renewal of the kingdom. We see a message that Saul preaches to the nation of Israel on this day. And this is the message that we're going to focus our thoughts upon. Samuel is about to deliver a message to a people that have been in rebellion. And it's a message which, in light of their victory over the Ammonites that they had just experienced, in light of their past rebellion, this is not necessarily a message that you would expect to stick. I mean, if you're going to preach a message that tells them that they've been rebellious for choosing a king, you wouldn't do it right after the king just delivered this fantastic victory for the people. But that's what Samuel is going to do. He's going to deliver a message that that highlights their rebellion and highlights repentance. Repentance you know around us everyday are men and women that need to be guided into truth men and women who need someone to tell them about the bible some of those people are contented unbelievers they're content in their unbelief they don't think they need anything a lot of people around here are that way they they're fine they're they're healthy they're they've they've got what they need they're they're contented some of them are discontented unbelievers people that know that there's a problem people that that are are brought, have been brought to the end of themselves people that are on their last their last straw there are those who are carnal believers those who have accepted Jesus Christ but have wandered away from the Lord and they may not even know it they're living the way they're living and and uh, they they think they're doing okay but Uh, Maybe they haven't been in church, or or maybe they haven't been reading their Bibles, or whatever it might be, or or they've gotten under a false teacher, and they've wandered away from the truth of God's Word, and they're living in carnality. Some of these people that we minister to are spirit-filled believers, walking with the Lord, but still, as we know, we all need edification, we all need discipleship, and we all need to hear the truth of God's Word. And we all fall into one of these categories and we are, are also all ministering to many in each of these categories. And the message that Samuel is going to deliver today will be a good template for us to understand how we can help deliver the truth of God's word to others. Now the message, the content of the message is what we talked about last week. Recall in our message last week we talked about God's goodness in the midst of our rebellion, and how God's goodness ought to lead us to serve him with all of our hearts. And that's the message that Saul is, or Samuel is going to give today. But the method of his delivery, the template of his delivery is what we're going to focus on. And as I say this, let me preface that, this message with, with just a reminder of the part that we play in ministry. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul, as he's writing to the church of Corinth here, tells them that he is what he is as a minister of God by the grace of God. That he recognizes that God has given him everything that he has as far as talents, as far as ability, as far as ministry. And because he has recognized this, he says, I wanted to pour every ounce of effort I had into serving my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because of all that he has given to me, because of the talents he's given to me, the abilities, the, the perspective, the, the truth that I have in my heart, and I, I poured my whole heart into serving him. And he says, but even as I put all of this effort into serving him, it was only by the grace of God that I could even do that. It's grace from beginning to end. I see the grace of God, so I work hard only by the grace of God. God's grace. Every single thing that you have ever done for Christ has been accomplished through the grace and the power of God and through his Holy Spirit. Every soul that you have ever won to Christ has really been God using you to bring souls to Him. Every believer that you have ever encouraged has really been God using you to encourage believers in Himself. And one day when you stand before your great God and you receive those crowns for your labor and you see that pile of gold, silver, and precious stones, those things that do not pass away, your rejoicing will not necessarily be your talents and what they brought about, but rather that your talents were used for God's purposes. For some inexplicable reason, God saw fit to take a broken, sinful tool and to use it to touch the lives of others for eternity. That will be your rejoicing on that day. Because we are indeed tools in the hands of the Master. We are channels through which the Holy Spirit works. We are stewards of the grace of God. Stewards of the knowledge of God. And 1 Corinthians, excuse me, yes, 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. To whatever God has given you as a ministry, to whatever responsibilities God has given you, if you are a steward of anything, and you are indeed a steward of the grace of God, then God wants you to be faithful to that. That's God's expectation for you. So we step into this renewal of the kingdom in chapter 12, verses 1 through 25. And as Samuel delivers this message to the people, he covers it in three broad concepts. First, he talks, it's kind of an introduction in verses 1 through 4 as he talks about his testimony. And then in verses 5 through 15, he reminds them of their sinfulness and how much of what they, their, their current state is rebellion. He reminds them where they are. And then in verses 16 through 25, he prayerfully directs them towards where they should be. Testimony, a declaration of where they are, a declaration of where they need to be. And this template is going to help us learn how we can minister to others as well. Whether it's the unbeliever or whether it's the believer, this template will help us. Whether lost soul in need, whether wayward believer, whether simple discipleship. So let's take a look at verses 1 through 4 and we'll see the introductory appeal and the first ministry reminder that we need to have, which is a reminder of the power of our testimony. Look with me if you would and we'll read verses 1 through 4. And Samuel said unto all Israel, remember this is at Gilgal, Behold, I have hearkened unto your voice in all that ye said unto me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walketh before you, and I am old and gray-headed, and behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my childhood unto this day. Behold, here I am. Witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose ass have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or of whose hand have I received any bribe to blind mine eyes therewith? And I will restore it you. And they said, Thou hast not defrauded us nor oppressed us, neither hast thou taken aught of any man's hand. I absolutely love what Samuel says here. He tells the people, Well, I've done what you've asked, I've given you a king, and now I'm old. And I'm not going to be around much longer and you know my sons are here and, and I've walked before you since my very youngest of days I've served this nation. And then he, he literally says, here I am. Take a look at me. Who have I defrauded? Who have I taken advantage of? Who have I wronged? Name the person that I've wronged. Whose animals have I taken? Who have I oppressed? Who have I taken a bribe from and has blinded my eyes to judgment so that somebody would say, well, Samuel, he didn't really uh, judge that properly, but that guy, I think he, he paid him on the side and that's why he said what he said. That's why he judged the way he judged. Who can lay any of those charges to me? And the people literally say, none of us can. Samuel, you've never done any of that. See, Samuel lived his life in good conscience before God and men. And at the end of his days, there was no one that could speak against him personally or, in, or from his ministry. And Samuel's point here was that he had been a true, good, loving minister toward the nation. That he cares for them. That his words to them aren't just for personal gain or personal benefit. When he rebukes them, it isn't because he's on some power trip. When he helps them, it isn't for some ulterior motive of, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Samuel stands before them and he asks anyone to name an offense and there were no offenses to name. He's had a good testimony and a good testimony is such a powerful thing. The old adage goes, it can take a lifetime to develop a good testimony and just a few moments to lose it. Even in the carnal context, we've seen this. You can see it uh, in, in politicians. You can see it in sports stars. You can see it in, in actors. We could run down a list. I, I, I started making a list and I was going to run down a list and then I decided not to go there this morning. But we could run down a list of, of movie stars, You could run down a list of sports stars. You could run down a list of politicians. And uh, unfortunately, you can run down a list of pastors and ministers who spent their entire lives or a large portion of their life with a good testimony influencing people and impacting people for good and then in a moment of indiscretion ruined everything and their ministries just fell apart or their reputation just fell apart. And we all know that this is a possibility, but when you're faithful, when you're genuine, honest, sincere, not that you're perfect. And as we as we think about this in a ministerial context, you being a minister of the gospel, me as a minister of the gospel, as we think of the the spiritual context here, it's not that we're perfect people. You, know, you every every person in here knows that as a pastor, I'm not perfect. As a man, I'm not perfect. I know that every single one of you, as individuals, as ministers, are not perfect. But the idea is faithfulness, sincerity, dealing honestly with God and with man, being a right testimony, and what a difference it makes. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. Proverbs says it's, it's a whole lot more important to have a right testimony than it is to have a lot of money. Testimony is not something you can buy. Reputation is not something that you can buy. It transcends the material. And what are the results of a good testimony? The results of a good testimony is that you can have a true impact on people. Now I continue to quote cliches this morning. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. We spoke at our fifth anniversary service about our goals for this little ministry that we have here at Legacy Baptist Church. And as we did so in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, I read this verse. For our rejoicing is this the testimony of our conscience that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation, that's our actions in the world, and more abundantly to you word. Simplicity and godly sincerity in ministry indicates a ministry that is what it says it is, a person that is who they say they are, a ministry that loves not just in word but indeed, a ministry that serves not just in word but indeed. When people see your words backed by your actions, they will know that you are genuine. When people see that you say you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but then they see that you are indeed a follower of Jesus Christ because of what you do and what you don't do, what you say and what you don't say, where you go and where you don't go, then the, the reality of your discipleship toward Jesus Christ is going to be established. You can say whatever you want, but it's by our actions that we fall and it's by our actions that we stand. Genuineness is what everyone's looking for today, isn't it? Now, we need to be careful about this whole idea of just looking for someone who's genuine, because if a person is genuinely not doing what they're supposed to do, it doesn't make them any more right before God. But, you know, you read the news and you're just being, oftentimes you feel like you're just being fed a big pile of lies or perspectives or agendas or talking points. You get online and 90% of the articles online are just clickbait so that you'll look at ads. You look at a person on a cover of a magazine and they're 85% airbrushed. It's not even what they actually look like in person. There's not a lot of genuineness out there. And people are craving that which is genuine in this age where it's so easy to be false. In a superficial society, true ministry, ladies and gentlemen, demands Honesty demands a genuineness, a simplicity and a godly sincerity. You don't have to walk around making everybody think that you're some sort of uber-Christian, but you know what? If your actions are not backing up your claims, if people can open to chapter and verse, properly interpret that verse, and find you in negligence to it, knowingly and willfully, they're not going to want what you have because they're going to see what you have as nothing more than hypocrisy. We're losing three of every four young people in the church today are walking away from the church. A large part of the reason why that's happening is because our young people don't see in us genuine faith. They see in us people that are willing to sit in the seats and nod our heads along with the Bible and nod our heads along with the pastor, and give the right answers, but who are not backing it up with our lives. Samuel had the ear of the people because he was a prophet of God. But did you notice? Remember back in chapter 10, Samuel says, Thus saith the Lord. Remember we talked about that last week? Thus saith the Lord, and he gave the message of God. God and that message was a message of truth, calling them to love God for His goodness. You don't see a thus saith the Lord in, verse, in chapter 12. Do you notice that? He doesn't say, thus saith the Lord. He says, behold, here I am. This time he doesn't say, thus saith the Lord. This time he says, you all know that I love you, right? I've spent a lifetime showing you how much I love you. I've spent a lifetime showing you by example what it means to serve and love God. I've never knowingly done you wrong. And Samuel says, would you listen to me? Because I've done right by you. But more than just a show of genuine love for them, it was also a testimony of his godliness. He wasn't just talk. He wasn't just telling people what they needed to do only to do the opposite himself. His words were an outworking of his life as it should be in all of our lives. He appeals to his testimony among them as proof that, his, that the words which he was saying were not just words of love, though they were, but they were um, words of, of testimony and they were certainly not words of contempt. He wasn't saying what he was saying just because he didn't like them. In fact, it was quite the opposite. And our ministry should be this way as well whether we seek to minister to a lost soul or to a wayward brother or to a fellow believer, your heartfelt demonstration of love for them, your consistent testimony of living according to the Word of God among them might very well make the difference as to whether they accept your message or reject your message. And notice how I said that. I am not saying that your testimony is enough, that you never need to declare the truth we're in an age of what's called relational evangelism where people have come to the point where they say it's enough for me just to be that book to live that book the the bible right and then they say well you might be the only bible anyone ever reads and i'm fine with that statement i'm not i don't i don't take issue with the statement that you might be the only bible anyone ever reads except for the fact that it's not enough just to be a right testimony of of the truth in the way that we live To be a quiet testimony of the Bible is one thing, but the Bible tells us that the unbelief of man and that the rebellion of man is broken through faith and that faith comes by hearing. It doesn't say faith comes by seeing the testimony of believers. It says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 says, How shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? We cannot simply follow this trend of of hands-off Christian life unwilling to engage people about the truth of God's Word living. Our Christian testimony is essential, but faith comes by hearing. A person can see your testimony, but if they don't know that Jesus Christ is what compels your testimony, then they can't get to the father through christ our good testimony and consistent lifestyle ought to be a compelling factor that validates in the hearts of men the message of the gospel but our good testimony is not a replacement for them hearing the gospel of jesus christ now reorienting our minds back on this concept of testimony These truths are very important for us to consider, specifically in conservative Christianity, because we can really struggle along the lines of our testimony. In relation to showing love, we can become a deeply judgmental group of people, can't we, we conservative Christians? It happens quite often, in fact. We see people walking contrary to sound doctrine, be it in in, in a church setting or or be it the unbeliever who, who has no interest in the things of God, and we can become deeply judgmental. It's our temptation to look at them as if there's something wrong with them and in doing so look at us as if there's something right with us. Or perhaps we simply see ourselves as some superior form of Christian and we condescend to help them out of their mire. We don't necessarily try to get this way, but it can certainly happen. The book of James is written almost entirely focused upon a group of Christians who were deeply judgmental in their faith, who were so busy uh, using external factors as the, as the, the source of their um, spiritual judgment that they completely missed the heart. And James openly condemned this carnal practice. And so we need to be careful that we are indeed ministering in love, that we're not ministering in, in judgmentalism or through our own self-righteous pride. But you know, the other danger of living a proper testimony that we conservative Christians struggle with is the danger of becoming deeply hypocritical in our lives. That we do come to a conservative church and you read our doctrinal statement and, and it's, it's, it's um, pretty specific and it's very conservative And we tell people, yeah, we believe all of that or we believe most of that or whatever the case may be. But we don't live like we believe it. Is there anything more repulsive than seeing a person with a do-as-I-say, not-as-I-do attitude? That's one of the things I struggle with more than anything in this life is the do-as-I-say, not-as-I-do manner of living. Whether it's a parent who's telling their child, don't lie, but their parents lie all the time. Or whether it's a politician who says, who condemns crony capitalism, but is where they are because of crony capitalism. Or whether it's the police officer who pulls you over for speeding, but is regularly seen around town speeding himself. Not only is it repulsive, but it lends to that person zero credibility, doesn't it? Why should I listen to you? You're telling me to do all of these things, but you're not doing them yourself. Why should, why should I listen? You're saying that this is a good thing, but you don't do that thing. You're doing fine. Why should I listen to you? What ministry can we possibly have among others who see us as do as I say, not as I do Christians? Doesn't your Bible say that you should not lie? You should not bear false witness? Well, yeah, it does. Doesn't your Bible say love thy neighbor as thyself? Yeah, it does. Doesn't your Bible say where there is no talebearer, no gossip, strife ceaseth? Yeah, it does. Simply put, any hypocrisy in your Christian life, any disparity between what the Bible says you ought to be doing and what you're clearly and unashamedly doing in your life will affect your capacity for ministry. And as Samuel stood before the people, he said, when have I ever had a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do attitude? And they said, never, Samuel. You've always been honest with us. You've always been genuine with us. You've always been upright with us. Samuel was a man who lived the power of a true testimony. He appealed to love for them because he had proved his love to them. He appealed to the sincerity of his life because he had lived a life before them of sincerity. And when it was time for the people to listen, they did because the man who stood before them didn't just talk a good talk, he walked a good walk. I'll leave you with this verse as we go on to our next point this morning. Jesus said this in Matthew five sixteen: Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. It is the light of our testimony that lays the foundation for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be heard and to be received. And we need to be living that good testimony. So continuing in the passage in verses 5 through 15, we then see Samuel, on the appeal of his love for them and their trust in him, remind them where they currently find themselves spiritually. One of the most important elements of spiritual growth is understanding our limitations, understanding our weaknesses, understanding our own problems. You all ought to have a pretty good idea of your problems because we all have them, right? The sins that you struggle with. As we pray and ask the Lord to search our hearts and to guide us into understanding, we ought to know those particular areas of struggle, understand our weaknesses. A man who thinks he has all of his spiritual basis covered is known in Scripture as a self-righteous man. He cannot see his needs because he doesn't think he has any needs. We all have them. This is, in fact, one of the primary functions of the Word of God in our lives. The Word of God is the light of God that shines into our hearts and shows us the dark corners that opens that closet that we don't want anyone to open and and shows us those skeletons and tells us, let's clean these things out points our way to the solution to our issues in Christ. And as Samuel attempts to bring the nation of Israel to the place where they are ready to follow and ready to obey God, he knew that they must first come to the place where they understand where they have fallen short of God. And this is what he says in verses 5 through 15. I'm not going to read it all to you this morning, but take a look at verse 5. He said unto them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that ye have not found aught in my hand. And they answered, He his witness. And Samuel said unto the people, it is the Lord that, ha- that advanced Moses and Aaron and that brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. And he talks about Moses and Aaron and he talks about Jacob and he talks about uh, the days of Sisera and Hazor and, and uh, the days of the judges and he talks about, in verse 11, uh, Bael, and Baden and Jephthah and Samuel, the, the judges there. And, and then he summarizes Nahash, the Ammonite, coming up against them and them asking for a king in verse 12. And then he says in verse 13, Now therefore behold your king, whom ye have chosen, and whom ye have desired. And behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If ye will fear the Lord. And serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord. Then shall both ye and also the king that reigneth over you continue following the Lord your God. But if ye will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was against your father. Fathers, excuse me. Samuel reminds them of where they are. He summarizes their history up to this point he tells them that they were rebellious and had rebelled against God's plan in asking for a king and then he reminds them that all hope is not lost but that they are not in the place that they need to be Israel this is where you stand even in your rebellion God has given you the means by which to align yourself with his will and find the blessing and joy that you seek If you and your king continue to serve the Lord and to follow the Lord, you can expect more days of victory and rejoicing. But if you and your king do not obey the voice of the Lord and rebel instead, you can expect the same results, as he says in verses 14 and 15. The results of the rebellion of years gone by, which is judgment. Now, as we translate this second concept into our ministries, the idea of helping people see where they are, This is where our good testimony and our clear acts of love should bring us to a place where that person is willing to listen to us so that we can direct them in the way that the Bible says they should go. Perhaps this is the unbeliever And you are reasoning with them concerning the gospel. And you must tell them of their need for the gospel. And your life has been a testimony to them of a changed life of the gospel. And now it's time for you to share the truth of God's word. And they are at a crossroads as to whether they are going to follow the Lord or they're not going to follow the Lord. But you need to bring them to the place where they see they need it first. Perhaps this is the carnal believer and you're reasoning with them out of the scriptures and, and they don't even know that they've got a problem and you open the Bible and you show them and you say, look, this is what the Bible says and this is what your life is doing. This is the direction you're going and this is the direction the Bible says to go. There's a problem here. And you show them, you bring them to that place where they, you, they recognize that they're not where they need to be. Or perhaps this is just a fellow believer walking with the Lord who is ready for the next step. And it's not necessarily that where they are is wrong, it's just where they could be is better. And it's time to take that next step. It's time to tell one of your children, hey, you're doing pretty well, but you could do more for Christ. The Bible says that we need to be fishers of men. The Bible says that we need to have that thriving relationship with God. Uh, The Bible says, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. What could you be doing more to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. Regardless of the context, we need to know where we are, confront people on where they are in order to get them where they need to be. We get to where we need to be by first seeing where we are. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, the psalmist said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David was not asking God to find out what was in his heart here. David was asking God to show him what... for God to show David what was in David's heart so that David could then go in the way everlasting. That's what David's asking here. God, You know what's in my heart. Now let me know what's in my heart so that I can get rid of the bad and so I can pursue the good, the way, everlasting. Proverbs 27.6 Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Perhaps, Father, God intends for you to show your children their own blind spots, the places where their faith could be pushed by revealing where they are and where they could be. Don't shy away from that opportunity to share the truth. Perhaps, friend, God wants you to help bring a fellow brother or sister in Christ to the next level of their Christian walk by showing them where they are and where the Bible says they could be. Don't deceitfully kiss your friend when they are really in need of a faithful wound. Samuel reminded the nation of his love. Then he lovingly declared the truth of the very poor spiritual state within which the nation found itself. But God is a good God. And his truth shines its light into our lives, reveals the darkness, and he always makes a path for us back to his light. A good minister does the same. Samuel shows them his love, and then on the basis of his love, he shows them his current condition. And then in verses 16 through 25, he prayerfully directs them toward where they ought to be, toward spiritual improvement. Now, it is in this step that Samuel's methods differ somewhat dramatically from ours. Because at this point, in verses 16 to 19, Samuel calls down thunder and rain from heaven as a sign that his words are from the Lord. And we don't really have, uh, I don't think anyone here has, the capacity to call down thunder and rain from heaven in order to scare people into recognizing their need to repent. But that's okay. Because as we learned a couple of weeks ago, the Holy Spirit has given us a, a much greater tool. And that's Himself. A force to convict the hearts of men through the Holy Spirit Himself. That the Holy Spirit has the capacity to convict the unbelieving world. We talked about John 16, 8, and 9 last week. When He, the Spirit, has come, he will, or two weeks ago, He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And he goes on of sin because they believe not on me and uh, talks about righteousness and judgment as well. Jesus announced a new degree of conviction in the hearts of men, a conviction through the Holy Spirit of God. So whether your ministry is to the unbeliever or the carnal believer or the spirit-filled believer, you can rest in the fact that you don't need signs and wonders to validate the truth. If you are willing to declare the truth, the Holy Spirit will validate the truth. If you are willing to live the truth, the Holy Spirit will validate the truth in the hearts of men. It's not our job to validate the truth. We can't call down thunder and lightning to validate our message, but we don't need it because we have the Holy Spirit of God to validate our message. It is not a ministry that we need to bear to convince people. It's our ministry to tell people. Isn't that a blessed relief that it's not your ministry to convince people? It's just your ministry to tell people. But as this third point would imply, the point of convincing the people of their poor spiritual condition was not to leave them into despair, but rather to compel them unto change. Samuel says as much in verses 20-25. through I won't read it for time, but several important elements must be mentioned here. First, Samuel's message is indeed a message of hope. And he can have this hope because God is a merciful, merciful God. And as ministers of God, we ought to, to also always be ministers of hope, not just heralds of doom or of sin and of despair. Now, we know that the end of all sin is death. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. We know that. We know that James chapter 1 tells us that when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished, it bringeth forth death. And then he says, do not err, my beloved brethren. He's talking to believers. So it's not just the unbeliever that heads towards spiritual separation, but even believers can be uh, taken out of fellowship with God through their sin. That sin destroys spiritual lives, and we know this. Sin is a terrible thing, but we are reminded of the blessed hope of Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, where he said, Moreover, the law entered that sin might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That wherever there is sin, be it in your heart and the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin, or be it in the heart of an unbeliever, or be it in the heart of a carnal believer, or wherever it might be, you can always know that where sin is abounding, there is always grace much more abounding, waiting in the wings. And as ministers of the truth of God's Word, this must, message must be proclaimed to the very highest of heights. We must echo with Samuel in 1 Samuel 12, verse 20, Fear not, turn not aside, serve the Lord with all your hearts. And for those who already know Christ, we must echo the words of verse 22, For the Lord will not forsake His people. But there's one more ministry here, and you see it, uh, if Matt's been able to keep up with me this morning, I've been jumping a little bit. If, If if he's where I think we are, yep, we're there. Okay, good. You see it in verse 23. There. God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and right way. If we truly believe that only God can convict hearts and only God can change hearts, and the truth of God finds effect in the hearts of men as it is applied to their hearts through the conviction of the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit as a response to the gospel that has been declared, then prayer becomes not just a good thing in our lives. Prayer becomes the essential thing in our lives. We said earlier in the service that the part that we play in this process of ministry is being the messenger, the tool in the hands of God to demonstrate this truth. And Samuel says here that not only will he continue to teach them in the good and right way, but he says if I were to stop praying for you, I would be sinning against my God. That as a minister of God and as, as a charge over which God has given me a responsibility for you, it is a sin for me not to pray for you to find the good and right way. The connection between prayer and effectiveness in ministry was one that Samuel saw very clearly. Men's hearts are touched by God, but then we have the capacity to touch God's heart through prayer. We know prayer to be more than just whistling in the wind. We know prayer to have a direct cause and effect relationship Uh, to spiritual power. We, We know these things. God forbid that we should cease to pray for those to whom we minister. God forbid that we should cease to beg God to bring the knowledge of the truth to our children, to bring the knowledge of the truth to our wayward family members, to bring the knowledge of the truth to our neighbors. God forbid that we should cease to pray for those to whom God has given us ministry effectiveness in their lives. And this is how we as God's people ought to minister the truth to those around us. We begin by living a life of proper testimony before God and before the world so that any words of truth that we will declare are validated in their hearts by our consistent lifestyle of truth and our obvious love for those around us. We continue to make it clear where men are spiritually that we care enough about them to tell them what they need to hear. And then we never cease to present the hope in Christ, prayerfully petitioning God to convince them of the truth and bring them to where they need to be in Christ. So as we close today, the question becomes, are you an effective minister of Christ? Are you living a proper testimony of truth on a daily basis? Are you showing the love of Christ that will compel people to listen? Do you love people enough to truly tell them their need? where they are and where the Bible says they ought to be? Are you persistent enough in prayer and careful enough to always point men not just toward the problem but then lovingly toward the solution as well? There are elements of an effective minister which um, must be learned over time. But as you look at effective ministry, wherever it might be found, you'll find these elements are present. You may not have the title of pastor or evangelist. You may not think of yourself as a minister per se as you sit there this morning. But if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, God wants you ministering to others. And as God helps you minister to others, a proper testimony... A willingness to tell people where they are and a prayerful determination to show people where they could be is how God will use you as an effective minister in the lives of others. Let's pray together.